And if you would please this morning turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Psalm 90. We should be in Philippians 2 this morning, but I just wasn't feeling it. I trust that you understand. As some of you may know, my mother died last night, and um, she'd been battling Alzheimer's for some time, so it was not a shock, but it's still a, a, a blow when it comes. And so this morning I was trying to get my head around Philippians 2, and just uh, I just wasn't um, wasn't feeling it. So next week, next week, God willing, I will be feeling it because it's a great passage. I look forward to preach it to you next week. But this morning, I reached back into the depths and came back to Psalm 90, one of the great psalms that I love, that I've committed to memory in a different version. And it's a great reflection, I think, not just in light of of death and my mother's passing, but as we as we kind of move into a new year, Psalm 90 is a great place to go in order to make sense of time and eternity and our um, precarious, somewhat precarious existence between time and eternity as we dangle by threads of mercy. So, if you would please um, Listen carefully, this is God's Word. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or sorry, I'm quoting the American standard, before the mountains were brought forth, or you ever had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sleep, you sweep them away as with a flood they are, like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers away. We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you or the fear due to you? So teach us to number our days. We may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. So, sorry, that was echoey. Um, Moses is the man of God, and he's also a man of prayer. And yet, in the Psalter, we have just one psalm from Moses. We, we know he also sang Moses' song. You can find that in the book of Exodus, chapter 15. But 
Uh, this is the only psalm that's credited to him in the Bible. And it seems likely that he wrote this psalm, the context of this psalm, the sitzim liben, the life situation um, of this psalm, fell during those wilderness years of wandering, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when God essentially let or left Israel stewing in the juice of their ingratitude, their rebellion, their refusal to trust Him. Um, they listened to the twelve spies. It's too big. The people are too big. They're too strong. The cities are too mighty. We can't beat these guys. It doesn't matter who God is. It doesn't matter what God said. And God… Um, after Moses struck the rock in frustration, God left Moses and Aaron and all of the, that generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt. They never entered the Promised Land. They all fell dead in the wilderness, except Joshua, of course, and Caleb, we read that recently. Now, this psalm, therefore, I think represents, makes best sense if we read it in light of Moses' experience in the wilderness, watching the thousands of Jews who were with him, his friends, family members, brothers, sisters, dying one by one in the wilderness as they just walk round and round, essentially in circles for 40 years, waiting to die. waiting for God. There's a British comedy called Waiting for God about these old people living in a nursing home. I think it's a play on words from Waiting for Godot, of course, the famous existentialist, nihilist play. God who never turns up, but in this comedy, they're waiting for God to take them into eternity. And Moses is trying to make sense of life in the face of death. Have you ever done that? Do you, have you made sense of life in the face of death? A hundred and fifty-four thousand human beings die every year. That's a rate almost of two a second. As fast as I click my fingers, people are leaving time for eternity. By the time this service is over, about eight thousand souls, depending how long I preach, but about eight thousand souls will have left time for eternity. Last night it was my mother, and one day it will be you. Do you ever think about that? We see yourself, I feel sometimes I have had this thought, you know, sometimes when I'm waiting in line for a roller coaster or a water park slide, and you're in the line, right, you look up at the, the long line, there'll be an hour of wait waiting for this death slide that your kids encourage you to go on. And you stand there looking up, and, and you, there, there, there are like hundreds of people, go, and you, every second or two you step forward as the next person takes their place in the firing line, as it were. And you think to yourself, I'll be up there soon too. And you look up and you think, hmm, one time, I wonder, wonder what I'll feel like when I'm there. But it seems like a very long way away, even if it was an hour. 
under the baking heat of the Florida sun. And you're looking and you take one step forward. And then eventually you round the corner, you climb the steps, and you're at the top of the slide waiting to go down. And it's you in the gully about to go whoosh and woo um, as you head down. And life's like that, isn't it? We look down the, the, the time of the, the, the long line of human beings ahead of us in the line of mortality and we think one day it'll be us in that most personal of all moments when we will come to die. Do you think about that? You should think about that. And there's no better time to think about that than the beginning of a new year. And maybe some of you as well, this psalm is more relevant than that. Maybe you feel as if you're wandering in circles like Israel in the wilderness. Your life's become futile. Maybe you've wandered away from God. Maybe you've had your own version of the 12 spy story, and maybe you feel God is uh, at best frustrated with you and is holding you at arm's length, and it's been years since you felt near to God, and you just feel as if you're making your life from one day to the next, and it's discouraging, it's drudgery, and you don't feel you're making any progress. Well, that's your case this morning. Psalm 90 is for you as well. So, as David, sorry, as Moses thinks about these realities, him stuck in the wilderness, he kind of groups his thoughts under three different headings. From verse 1 to 6, he thinks about the eternity of God and the brevity of man or the brevity of life. And then in the next verses, he thinks about the depravity of sin and the certainty of wrath. And then lastly, he thinks about the theology of life and our need to pray from verse 12 down to the end of the psalm. Let's begin then at the top. First of all, the eternity of God and the brevity of life or man. Lord, You've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, you ever formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Here's Moses looking down the long line of human beings destined to die in the wilderness. And two words, two ideas give him comfort. First of all, his sovereign, our sovereign, and secondly, our shelter. Lord, our sovereign. The word Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. It's a very ancient Hebrew word. It goes back to the Akkadian language, which is a language that goes back as far as far can go. And it it means the idea of someone in charge, someone who does according to His will, someone whose decrees cannot be thwarted, a potentate, a ruler. And Moses remembers God, our sovereign, that there's somebody in charge of my wanderings, even in the wilderness. There's somebody in charge of my life. It's not chaotic, though it can seem chaotic. It's not out of control, though it can feel out of control. There is a Lord above it all. 
our shelter, and then, sorry, our sovereign, and then secondly, our shelter. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all uh, generations, our shelter. Human beings have dwelling places. Our president lives in the White House. Kings live in palaces. The rich live in mansions. Criminals live in jail, or they ought to. The wicked live in sin. Aborigines live in their grass huts, and you and I live in houses. But for the Christian, our ultimate shelter, Moses says, our ultimate dwelling place is God. And it's very emphatic in Hebrew. It says literally, you yourself have been our refuge, our dwelling place. That's very encouraging that in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a place to run, but it symbolized a person to whom you could run. The refuge we have isn't just something to do or somewhere to run. It's someone to know that the Lord is there. William Plummer, the famous commentator in the Psalms, says, How safe and how happy are the people of God. They dwell in God, and God dwells in them. Spurgeon, the great preacher from the 19th century in London, said, Men wandering through the wilderness found a home in God. Kings' palaces have vanished beneath the crumbling hand of time. They have been burned with fire, buried beneath mountains of ruins, but the imperial race of heaven, God's children, have never lost their regal habitation. Here is one place that abides eternally untouched by the finger of decay. Our sovereign is our shelter. And that, sh- that thought should at the same time fill you with two conflicting emotions. First of all, it should fill you with humility. God is permanent. We are transient. He turns us back to dust. More about that in a second. Dust we are, and from dust we were created, and in the end, dust is our destiny, at least for our time until Christ or while Christ tarries. We're transient. A day is like a thousand years, the Hebrew says. What's Moses mean? Well, there's two ways of thinking about it. God could be describing the complexity of every day. So, you think about a day. Your day is 24 hours long, right? But from God's perspective, there's so much happening in that day. Like all the things you're doing, all the thoughts you're thinking. We said last week, every human being has, what, 70,000 thoughts a day? And God sees all those thoughts in real time. But he doesn't just see your thoughts. He sees the thoughts of every human being in this room, 
And every human being in Greensboro, every human being in Guilford County, every human being in North Carolina, every human being in the southeastern part of the continent of the United States. I mean, it, it, it just gets bigger and bigger, or North America, bigger and bigger, right? And the whole world, he sees the thought of every human being. He sees the rocks orbiting um, the rings of Saturn. He sees the, the, the ants scurrying through uh, the rainforests of Peru. He sees the beat of each hummingbird flying through this world this morning, all of the plankton in the oceans, all of them moving, and he sees them all, every speck of dust in the universe. And from that perspective, a day is filled with a vast complexity, the kind of complexity we would see in a thousand years. Or another way of looking at it is to think of If, if a thousand years were shrunk down to 24 hours, your lifespan before God is like a 90-minute movie. And for some of you, we're getting pretty close to the credits. There's like eight or nine minutes left. That's pretty sobering. It should humble us. It, it kind of cuts us down to size. Our efforts to build the biggest empire, to amass a 401k, to, you know, money, stuff, clothes, fitness. And we get proud of ourselves, how much we've achieved, like Nebuchadnezzar. You know, God has blessed us here the past seven years. The Lord has brought remarkable growth to this church. And it's very easy to forget that someday I will step into this pulpit and preach my last sermon here and either die or retire, and that'll be it. And somebody else will be the pastor at Christ Covenant Church. And when we forget that, you're taking the first step towards pride. We end up becoming like the weeds and the grass. It's funny how fast the weeds grow. They always grow faster than the grass. But on a Saturday, the weeds and the grass are growing right during the summer. And you can imagine the weeds saying, I am taller than you, miserable grass. And the grass going, yes, but the master loves me more than you. He feeds me. He tries to kill you. And, and there's all this. And they both forget, Right? that Josiah's coming with the lawnmower to cut them all down to size. And likewise, after all of our pride and arrogance and little petty empire building in business world, in the church world, wherever it is, in the home world, very soon we will die. And Psalm 90 comes like that Roman slave behind the Roman general in the triumph march. He's awarded for his great victory. And it says that, sick temper, gloria mundus, Thus passes all earthly glory. Memento mori. Remember you must die. The permanence of God and the transience of man should fill us with humility and lead us to look up to God in hope. Humility and hope. 
that God is a lasting place of refuge for passing people. He pre-existed every other place of refuge. The mountains, before the mountains were born, the mountains are the great solace. People run to hide in the mountains. They take refuge in the mountains. When the Russians invaded Afghanistan, the um, Afghans hid in the mountains. They're a place of refuge before the mountains were born. God was there from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. God has always been there in the past. He will always be there in the present, and He shall always be with us in the future. And Moses remembers that in his wilderness wanderings, that even though God has left them in the wilderness, He's not left them alone. The tabernacle is still there. The pillar of fire is still there by night, and the pillar of cloud by day. God is with them. Nothing they can do, nothing that can be done to them, nothing that can be done by them can change the fact that God is with them. And for those, for Christians, that is true. If you're trusting Jesus, God will never abandon you. Now, if you're an empty professor in the church, those promises are yours for a while, and if you don't wise up and turn to Christ and put your faith in Him, then eventually you may find yourself to be cast out and cast off into eternal exile. But for people who are truly looking to Jesus and leaning upon Him, God is with you. A God of open-ended existence before the beginning of all beginnings in Genesis 1, and at the end in eternity. God has open-ended existence. He's the great constant in life. He is with us. The eternity of God and the brevity of man, our sovereign is our shelter, and that should humble us and teach us to measure ourselves, not by what we think of ourselves, not what others think of us, but we need to measure ourselves by eternity and infinity. And that's when you get the true measure of the Imago Dei. She fills with humility and hope that our sovereign is our shelter. So, secondly, then, it also, Moses thinks about the depravity of sin and the certainty of death. Why do we die? Why all this death in the wilderness? Why is God cutting us down to size like the, like the lawnmower, verse 5 and verse 6? Verse 7, for we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring, them, we bring out our years to an end like a sigh. Why is man returning to the dust? Man is returning to the dust because Adam forgot the fundamental rule of creation. He was a pile of dust in the ground. And what made him different than dust? What made him more than dust 
was that God knelt down, put his mouth around Adam's lips, and breathed life into him, and he became a living soul. And I've said this before, but of course, there was a warning in that moment, because in a sense, God was saying to Adam, if you ever forget who made you more than dust, and you walk away from me, you will begin a process that will make you nothing but dust once again. And so, when Adam sins, God says, from dust you are created, and to dust you shall return. There can be nothing more than dust in a human being without God. And Adam's sin, and the sin of Moses and the generation he was with, brought the anger of God upon them. We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. That's incredible. Um, When Moses thinks about God's reason to be angry with him and the wilderness generation… He doesn't go back to, well, I struck the rock, and that was stupid. Or they always whined and grumbled about the food or lack of meat and the size of the the Amalekites and so forth. No, Moses says, the hidden sins of our heart are enough to justify God being angry with you forever. You have set our iniquities as the hidden crookedness of the heart, the polluted stream from whence all sin comes. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. What Moses is saying here is, if you never sinned with your mouth, you never said a mean word in your life, and you never did anything actually wrong with your hands or your feet or your sexual organs. No outward sin. Your inward sin enough, your inward, inward sin, your hidden heart would be enough to, for, to justify God wiping you and wiping me off the face of the earth forever. Your jealousy the evil eye of envy, when somebody else gets more, that that ungrateful impulse that forgets all that God has given us, all that God has not done to us which we deserve, and we see some other creature with a little bit more than we have, and we get envious. Not fair, we say. Eyes trained in a eyes full of adultery, hearts trained in greed, Jesus says. The bitterness, the malice, how we nurse grudges, how we rehearse in our mind the wrong things people did to us, the things people said to us, we get bitter. And of course, Bitterness is the poison we drink, hoping others die. But that madness that we become bitter, angry, resentful. The inner heart, which is the root of all of our outward sins, of course, Moses says, would justify God wiping us off the face of 
the earth. We come into life with a cry, and we go out with a groan. Thomas Watson said, we, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. And Moses says, who considers the power of your angry and your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due to you? Who considers? Moses says, we don't give, none of us give enough consideration to the wrath of God. Do you ever, do you ever think, give serious thought to, the, to God's just reason to be angry with you. Teenagers, the way you roll your eyes at mom and dad behind their backs, you walk away and say, jerk, under, under your breath. God hears you. The angels hear you. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul speaks about women wearing head coverings. Now, I believe that their hair is given for a covering, Paul says. Others believe women in church should wear hats. It's a debatable subject. But what's interesting is, right, whatever it, whether it's their womanly hair or whether it is a hat, Paul says it's a sign of authority. And he says, ladies, don't stop covering your heads because of the angels. Like, why would the angels care? Because they'd be scandalized if you didn't own your place before God. As those under authority, the authority of your husband and the authority of the leadership of the men in the church, right, who lead in the church. You're not, you don't submit to every man, but you submit to the elders and the deacons and to your own husband, right? But you ever thought that it scandalizes the angels when you speak to your husband as if he was under your authority? When you control him by giving and withholding the marriage bed, just teach him, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That's a powerful logic right there. And all that comes from our hearts. Or men, when you, when you use anger, and, and you, you, rather than actually manning up and leading in your house, isn't it so often true we use anger as a, to, to kind of bully and cow people into place? We've got the biggest voice. We're like a fear-biting dog, trying, trying to manipulate and control. And God sees all of that, and it gives Him reason to be angry with us. And And the cross deals with the anger of God, right? As in, God will never damn His people. But you read the Psalm, Psalm 38, for example, Psalm 90. Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. When God speaks to the sexually immoral in Thessalonica, I've warned you before, Hold your own body, your own vessel, in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Nobody rob 
his brother or sister of their sexual purity. Why? Well, because they're kind of like, you know, you won't, you won't have your best life now. No. For God is the avenger in all of those things, as I warned you before. Paul said, I've told you time and time and again, you cannot sin in sexual immorality with impunity. Why well, can't I have a wee bit of a fling? You might say to myself, I'm a college student. All my friends are doing friends with benefits. Why can't I go and have some fun? Because God is the avenger. But I'm a Christian. Paul wasn't saying that to the, the, the harlots down at the temple. He was saying that to the church. In 1 Corinthians 10, whenever Paul is talking to the Corinthians about their idolatry, he says, remember, Israel sinned in the wilderness, and thousands of them died in a single day. These things were written as an example for you, Paul says. The cross removes the danger of hell, although if we profess to be a Christian and live like a pagan, at some stage we have to ask the question, which is true? Are we a Christian or are we a pagan? And if you're still a pagan, I don't care how much you know, how much you do in the church, if you live like a pagan, you'll die like a pagan and be damned like a pagan, if a pagan is what you are, right? But Moses was forgiven. Aaron was forgiven. King David was forgiven. And yet they felt the disciplinary wrath of God in their lives. The gospel does not take away the reaping and sowing logic of life. Do not be deceived. What a man sows, that he will also reap. And Paul and Moses says, you could be rescued from an awful lot of that if you considered the wrath and fury of God according to the fear that is due to Him. Don't trifle with God. Don't trifle with sin. God doesn't. And, and Moses thought about that. The depravity of sin and the certainty of God. And too many people take the gospel as if it makes sin harmless. Not for Christ. And not for you either, if I read my Bible correctly. And then lastly, Moses thinks about, in these wilderness wanderings, a theology for life and our need of prayer. If one of the, the great lessons of the Psalter is that we face life best when we face God first. And whatever the psalmist is experiencing, the presence of God, the absence of God, the love of God, the wrath of God, his best day, his worst day, his, his days of victory, days of defeat, success, failure, sweetness, bitterness, darkness, light, whatever he's facing, the psalmist takes his experiences and brings them to God. And as Moses is wandering in the wilderness, watching these people die all around him, it encourages him to turn to God and to bring um, six prayers 
dying men should offer to the living God. And the reason for that, Alec Matir says, it is by prayer that we counter the disintegrative effects of sin. We fly to the God we've offended by prayer, and we actually and experientially take up our dwelling place with God. The Israelites were forbidden to enter the promised land, but they were directed to make up that loss in God. And sometimes God puts us in the wilderness to teach us that what we need is not the promised land, it's not the cities we did not build, and the hewn cisterns that we did not dig, and the vineyards and olive groves that we did not plant. That what we need most of all is God. Israel would forget that in the promised land. They would enjoy the land and forget the giver of the land. And in the wilderness, God taught them that lesson again in reverse. You haven't got the land, but you can still have me. And when you have me, it really is enough. Six prayers. I'm going to just list them because we're really finished this morning. First of all, teach me wisdom. Teach me wisdom. So, because of the, the wrath due to God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Plummer again says, true wisdom is true religion. Such wisdom is very rare. It requires the heart and a life lived in the face of death. If you don't begin with the end in mind, you won't get there from the beginning, right? You have to begin with the end in mind. People say, well, you live life best when you begin with death in mind. How will I wish I had lived when I come to die? That's an important question. Well, why aren't you living like that now? Teach me to number my days. Teach me wisdom. Secondly, give me mercy. Return, O Lord, verse 13, how long? Have pity on your servants. The word pity in the Hebrew means to look on misery and feel something. Here's Moses, and he's in trouble, and he's conscious, conscious that God looks at him and feels something. It's like us. When you're, you know, your father, when you're a child, you're climbing a tree, and my dad would say to me, son, if you don't stop climbing that tree, son, if you fall out of that tree and break your leg, don't come running to me, <laughs> right? It's kind of funny, but he would say that to me. But if I did fall out of the tree and break my leg, he would have come running to me, right? We're sinners, and we can't look upon our children in misery, even if they have caused that misery themselves and brought it all upon themselves, we still feel sorry for them. And the psalmist, Moses, kind of thinks, if I'm that way, then God must be that way as well. And he prays, Lord, you're the God who's returning me to dust. I pray you might return to me in mercy and pity and compassion. And that should encourage you. Maybe you are up to your neck in a muck that you have made. I can say with true 
God may be angry with you, but he also feels sorry for you. Look to him. Call upon him. Teach me wisdom. Give me mercy. Thirdly, love me faithfully. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. It's amazing. Israel had sinned their way into the wrath of God, but they had not sinned their way out of the chesed of God, His steadfast love. God's chesed love is His stubborn commitment to love you no matter what you deserve. Fourthly, bring me joy. Make us glad according to for, for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. He's acknowledging here that God is the source of his misery. He's saying to God, you who have so faithfully made me miserable, would you not also mercifully return and make me happy? And the very fact that Moses prays that prayer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is telling misery will never have the last word over God's family. And God sometimes does make us miserable in life. God sends us through times of misery and disaster, and they go on for years, but they're felt day by day by day, is the idea in the Hebrew. But yet He never afflicts us Willingly, Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3, you do not willingly afflict the children of men. He never puts his whole heart into it. It's like when we spank our children, we say, this will hurt me, more is going to hurt you. That's only tangentially true. But there's a truth there, right? We don't actually enjoy spanking our children, and every stroke that hurts them also hurts us. And that's what God is like. Lamentations says he does not willingly afflict his children. And though weeping may last for the night, and it will last the whole night long, yet a shout of joy comes in the morning. No matter what miseries you're going through now, Christian, they will not be the eternal state of your soul. There'll come a day when you will say goodbye to all of your miseries, and the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing upon His wings, and Christ will wipe every tear from your eyes, and you will live in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Teach me wisdom. Give me mercy. Love me faithfully. Bring me joy. Show me glory. That's wonderful. It's not so much, you see it there in the text, let your work be shown to your servants and literally your majesty to their children. It's not so much that the psalmist wants the children to see God's power. He wants them to see God's glory. And so what Moses, and you'll always hear this in the psalmist, Moses doesn't want less trouble. He wants more of God. He doesn't want the wilderness to go. He wants God to come. And that's a sign that the wilderness years have done you some good, that you realize my greatest need is not more of this or less of that. It's more of God himself. And then lastly, show me your favor. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. 
Yes, establish the work of our hands. Israel's been in the wilderness building sand castles in the desert. It's all crumbling beneath their feet. And they long for God's favor to be like water at the beach that gives the sand castle some solidity, makes the sand stick together to establish it and let you build something of meaning. And without the favor of God, Moses realizes we can't do anything of meaning in our lives. And we have lost that favor because we valued other things or the felt sense of the smile of God. Now, how can a Christian like Moses lose the favor of God? Well, in one sense you can, and in another sense you jolly well can't. It's a bit like in Northern Ireland where the sun never shines, but once a year, and all the photographers take the aerial pictures from the air. It looks beautiful, but, it doesn't, but it's cloudy the whole time, the rest of the year. But above those clouds, the sky is always blue. Or as Johnny Gibson says, the moon is always round, even though most of the month it seems like it's not. And God is always favorable with His children. But if you you play footloose and fancy free with God's favor, He may hide His face from you and leave you wallowing in the shadows for a long time, like 40 years is a long time. And God never changes. So, many of these people are in heaven, but it didn't take away the fact that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But though God can take away the felt sense of His favor and smile, the very fact that Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thinks to say, Lord, let your favor returns. Let you know that such a prayer is not worthless, and such a hope is not aimless. That God can take His favor away, but God's favor can be found again, and it's found through prayer. So, the six prayers to pray in the wilderness— Teach me wisdom, give me mercy, love me faithfully, bring me joy, show me glory, show me favor. One last thought. How do we make sense of this prayer in light of the New Testament? Well, God is our dwelling place, our tabernacle. God lived in the tent with Israel during these wilderness days. He didn't abandon them. He abandoned them to the wilderness but he didn't abandon them in the wilderness. He was there with them. And in the New Testament, we see that God's willingness to be with His people is very strong indeed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled amongst us. That Jesus has clothed Himself in our frail nature, to be with us. God is so determined to be with you. He's become one of you in Christ. And not just one of us as a man, but one of us as a sinner. For though Christ has no sin of His own, God imputed to Him all of the sins of His people, which is why He took His place in the line of dirty sinners going down to the dirty waters of the, of the Jordan to be baptized. 
because of his solidarity with us. He was with us in, in our sin and with us in our baptism and with us in our death and with us in our damnation upon the cross. And then he says, and you shall be with me in the glory forever. And that should make you say, hallelujah, what a Savior. And all of your sin, all of your ingratitude, all of your failure, and all of mine cannot rob you of the truth that God is your dwelling place. Your sovereign is your shelter, come hell or high water. Run to Him. You'll not be disappointed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word and its truth, and we pray now, Father, as we continue our service of worship, that You would draw near to us and speak to us, O Lord, with the voice that wakes the dead. In Christ's name, amen.